0: We like to kick it old school a little bit there. All right, well, we are in a new series called The Transformers. We started last week, and uh, Steve said, if you weren't here and you consider yourself a hope person, I would encourage you to grab the CD or the the MP3 off the website because it introduces where we're going. Last week, we focused on a passage, a very short little passage in the book of Mark. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. If you don't, uh, if I can encourage you to take a little insert out of your bulletin because the text we're going to look at is there. And I'd like everybody to kind of be able to follow along. And um, you could even jot a note down or two if you want. But last week we looked at just two little verses in Mark chapter 1 that are like a summary of Jesus' teaching. Mark basically says, if I'm going to summarize all of Jesus' teaching into kind of the core nugget, the essential nugget that Jesus taught, this is it. M- Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 14. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, and we talk about that means that it's like the moment humanity's been waiting for. The kingdom of God is near, and we we learned last week that the number one topic that Jesus talked about more than anything else is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of availability to ordinary folks like you and I. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, change the way you think, and believe in the good news. Life in God's kingdom was the major theme of Jesus' teaching. Life in God's presence, the life that you've always wanted to have. That this life is now available to ordinary human beings like you and I. We don't have to get religified. We don't have to get cleaned up. It's just available. We can walk right in. And Jesus said, that's pretty good news. And this life, Jesus said, is available through me. Through me, Jesus said, the person of Jesus. Mark does something interesting after this little summary. He begins to illustrate how Jesus began to call people to follow him. So pick up with me, if you would, right where we left off. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And actually, you don't have to turn there, but you get a similar story in uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. I want you to think about this. These are extraordinary stories. Jesus, seemingly, is just walking along and he taps people on the shoulder. And they leave everything to follow him. Whenever I read passages like this, there to me is an obvious question that begs to be asked. And the obvious question is, it's a semi obvious question, actually, apparently. Um, (laughs) Yes, the question is, why? Why would people just leave everything to follow Jesus? What's up with that? What's going on here that would make ordinary people walk away from the lives that they've built to follow Jesus? I mean, let's think about the facts. These folks have jobs, they have identities. They have roots, they have a home, they have families, they have security. I mean, this is not in a culture where people had Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and unemployment. To have a family system and a job was about as secure as you could get. They had parental obligations. We know at least James and John had a relationship with their father in the business. They had investment of capital in these businesses, yet they leave everything to follow. Is that the kind of decision that you would make lightly? Is that the kind of decision you would make flippantly or casually? See, we need to be asking ourselves, what could be on the other side of that scale that weighs in so heavily that it tips the balance in favor of leaving everything to follow Jesus? As far as we know, these guys were not huge risk takers. They were not like big gambler types. As far as we know, they were not running from something like a bad marriage or a family situation or a career mistake they'd made. They were not burnt out with life. And this is really important. These guys were not spiritual giants. The only reason I think a person would do this is because of the person who it is that tapped them on the shoulder. Now, it is true that I think some of these guys had a previous experience with Jesus. They lived in this area called Galilee. That wasn't a very big place. They probably heard of him. We know at least one of these disciples had previously had been a disciple of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. So there may have been some level of knowledge. But there was something about Jesus and the chance to be with him and the chance to grow like him that was so compelling that weighted against the balance of their whole lives, it seemed like a no-brainer to them. I want us to really wrestle with this question today. Why follow Jesus? Why be his apprentice? Why be his disciple? What is so compelling about Jesus? And again, let me be really, really clear about this at the outset. These people did not choose to follow Jesus because they were spiritual giants. I think too often we read stories like this and they think, well, you know, these guys made this decision because they had some level of spirituality that I don't have and I'm an ordinary person and I struggle with doubt and questions and fears. These guys were ordinary folks like you and I. Don't beat yourself up and think you're lesser than they are. These are ordinary people who saw something with great clarity. What they saw was Jesus and the life he was offering. And I believe if we could see it clearly too, we'd make the same response. Too often we, meaning the church, have not communicated clear enough what it is that Jesus offers and why it's good news. I want to say a word about this concept of being an apprentice. Uh, Sometimes translated as being a, a disciple. It's kind of a churchy word. I like the word apprentice better. Anybody follow the TV show, The Apprentice? You don't want to admit it in church, a few of you. Um, It's a TV show. The premise is that there's people that come together. It's like a reality show, or at least claims to be. I don't know if any of them are actually real, but it comes, the people come together, and they compete to be Donald Trump's, like, uh, kind of junior executive, and if whoever wins, then he will train them, equip them to be a business and real estate mogul like he is. He's the master. He's the teacher. They're the student. They're the apprentice. That's the idea. We understand apprenticing in our culture. There are certain trades where you have to apprentice to get the skills you need to become fully uh, vested in that trade. We, we understand it at a, at a kind of a pop culture level. Doug mentioned it earlier. There was a, a marketing campaign back in the uh, 90s called Be Like Mike. Remember that? Be Like Michael Jordan. It was Gatorade. And the premise was that if you orient your life around imitating and learning to be like this other person, like Michael Jordan, that you could follow in his footsteps. The points the ads were making, that if you wore Hanes underwear and eat at McDonald's and drank Gatorade, you would inevitably become like Michael Jordan at some point in your life. But this is a really important question. This is a fundamental question of life. Who do you want to be like? See, every person actually asks that question consciously or subconsciously all of us move our lives around a model of some sort it could be our parents it could be a teacher a mentor a coach somebody who's ahead of us in our career path every culture has heroes so I ask you again who do you want to be like now there's a problem with asking that question in church because in church you know what the right answer is supposed to be the right answer in church is always Jesus It's like the little kid that was in Sunday school, and uh, the teacher said, who is it that is furry and brown and has a big furry tail and gathers nuts for the winter? And the little kid said, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. And (laughs) And you understand that in church, there's like a right answer. And so we give that answer without really thinking about it. But here, I want you to really take that question seriously. Who do you want to be like, really? Who is it that you model your life after, your career, your family, your money management? your relationships, who do you want to be like? All of us answer that question, consciously or subconsciously. I would argue that all the stuff that culture offers as the stuff that satisfies our soul, money, pleasure, success, stuff, that none of those things ultimately satisfies our soul. It will not lead to a life well spent. It will not fulfill the destiny for which God created us. None of those things are the foundation ultimately to build a life. See, a disciple, an apprentice, is someone who has answered the question, who do I want to be like? And I, I, I follow, I, I am a disciple of, I'm an apprentice of the person that I want to be like. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 10. He said, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Jesus is saying a disciple, an apprentice, is someone who says, I want to become like my teacher. In the 2000 Sydney Olympics, there was a swimmer named Gary Hall. He was a veteran swimmer. He had been in several Olympics already. And um, he took a young swimmer named Anthony Irvin, who was his first Olympics, under his wing. He was seven years younger. And he began to train him and coach him. He said, here's what I want you to do. We're going to get up at the same time every day. We're going to eat the same meals at the same time every day. We're going to go through the same training regimen every day. I know what it takes to be an Olympic swimmer. You don't yet. You're new at this. I'm going to train you to be like me, to be an Olympian. Same time every day, get up. Same time, go to sleep. Same diet, same exercise, same weight routine, same everything over the course of several years. When the Olympics finally come, they came, they... Uh, they both actually entered, one of the events was the same, the 50-meter 50 50 freestyle. And they actually finished, and you can look this up, they finished at exactly the same time, down to the hundredth of a second. One of the rare occasions in the Olympics, modern Olympics, where people have actually shared a gold medal. It's the best picture I've ever seen of a student becoming like his teacher. It was exactly like him, to the hundredth of a second. An apprentice, a disciple, is someone who has decided ultimately my goal in life is to become like this teacher, like this master, like this model. So my question again is who is your teacher? An apprentice and a a disciple of Jesus is someone who says he's my teacher. I will learn to live life as Jesus would if he were in my place. These people that followed Jesus, that left everything to follow Jesus, did it because they were convinced this was their one shot of living as God intended them to live. They were convinced this was the opportunity of a lifetime. They were convinced that it would be sheer lunacy not to jump at it. But again, these are ordinary people, not spiritual giants. But they understood what was being offered. So in the time we have left, I want us to unpack that question, why follow Jesus? Why was it such an obvious decision And the first thing I want to point out is Jesus knows what he's talking about. That may sound very simple, but I want you to think about this. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Go on in Mark chapter 1, if you would, kind of picking up where we left off. Verse 21, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. That word authority is an important word. There's several different words for authority uh, in the original language of Greek that the New Testament was written in. Then this word means bestowed authority. The idea was like a messenger that was sent on behalf of a king. He was speaking not on his own. He was speaking on behalf of the king. His words were the king's words. That kind of authority. They recognized there was something special about Jesus. It wasn't just that he was really educated, he was really well-learned. That would be the, the teachers of the law. They were educated. They had the authority to come from study, but this was more than that. There was more than just the force of his personality, his charisma. There was something special, like he was anointed. Now, the first piece of this had to do with the fact that Jesus simply spoke the truth. Here, here's a, I want you to think about the implications of speaking the truth. Here's a question for you. Do you expect to hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, from, like, your political leaders? How about from CEOs of businesses? See, we live in a culture where we expect spin. We expect deceit. We expect people to hide the facts. We live in a world where we don't expect someone to speak the truth. We expect people to say the checks in the mail when it's really not. We expect people to keep secrets from their spouse. We expect people to fudge on reports. We live in a world where there's a continual flow of non-truth. There was a study that was done, interestingly, by a secular organization, and I emphasize the secular part because I wanted you to know there was like no moral agenda that this organization had. They just simply did a survey. They wanted to find out about deceit in our culture. They said the average person lies or deceives. Not an overt lie, but deceives. spins something, shades something a little bit, you know, exaggerates, whatever it would be. The average person lies or deceives 200 times a day. That's an average person. To encounter someone who really spoke truth, that's a remarkable thing in and of itself. What's more, what Jesus spoke about, when it was applied to their lives, it worked. When they applied stuff he talked about in marriage, it made their marriage better. When they applied stuff he talked about in terms of relationships, the relationships got better. They had more peace, they had more joy. When they applied stuff he said about money, their financial world got more stable. When they applied the lessons he taught, their life was better. What's more, as he himself lived out the truths that he taught, as he modeled this life, they all thought, that's the life I want to live. Now, imagine with me for a moment coming in contact with a human being that spoke only the truth and you saw in their life the truth lived out and that life was compelling. You thought, that's what I want. And when they applied that When you applied that same truth to your own life, it worked. Can you get a sense of the impact a person like that would have? Contrast that with the world we live in. Imagine the kind of trust and rapport that would be established. You'd walk around and you'd say, this guy knows what he's talking about. Now imagine the prospect of not just being with a person like that, but imagine if that person said to you, over time, through the power of God, you can become like me yourself. Why follow Jesus? Because he knew what he was talking about. Number two, because Jesus taught ordinary people how to live in the flow of God's power. Again, go on in Mark chapter 1, verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority, there's that word again. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is a man who lived life tapped into the power of God. Imagine for a moment coming in contact with that kind of power. Power in any form is pretty impressive. When I was in middle school, uh, growing up in Southern California, uh, Hulk Hogan came to my, my junior high, my middle school, his niece went to my school, and uh, he was shooting a music video. I don't know if you know that Hulk Hogan is uh, not only a professional wrestler, but he was apparently a musician as well. I say apparently. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of evidence to that, but he was. So he did this music rock and roll song, and he, did this, he wanted to shoot a music video. And one of the scenes, he wanted all these kids to come running around him because it was like the whole Hulkamania. How many of you are Hulkamaniacs? You know you were. Okay, very good. So anyway. <laughs> Uh we, we had, you know, they had to, took us all out of school for the day, which is probably money well spent on my parents' part. And um, they had us gather this parking lot, and he would come rolling in on his Harley, and we would come running out. We had to shoot it over and over and over. They had the big cranes with the cameras shooting at us, you know. And you actually, if you go to YouTube, you can see this music video. It's still there, and you can see um, me running out. Look for somebody who has roughly the same build that I have right now uh, um, when I was 13. But anyway just being around that guy when i was in middle school an enormous guy like 6 foot 5 huge muscles and buff and you know just power is impressive it can be mechanical power like a race car or a jet airplane it can be political power like the head of a state or a head of state or a president or a king royalty it can be financial power like bill gates or warren buffett any any kind of power physical mechanical political financial social power intellectual power Power in all of its forms is impressive. But again, imagine for a moment coming in contact with a person who seems to have tapped into, connected to, has access to the power of God. And again, imagine ordinary people like you and I who know weakness. Who know what it's like to struggle with anxiety and worry like some of us do. Who know what it's like to go through seasons of joylessness and despair like some of us have. Ordinary people who have had broken relationships like some of us have, who struggle with forgiveness or our past, who know what it's like to battle and fail over and over and over against the same temptations. Ordinary people, like many of us, who know what it's like to hurt ones we love. Imagine ordinary people like us, like these disciples, coming in contact with a person who possesses the power of God over and over and over in Mark, we see stories of Jesus' healings and casting out demons. And one of the reasons for that is that Mark wants us to understand the kingdom of God has broken through to the, into the world through this person, this person Jesus. So Jesus was constantly saying to folks like us, ordinary folks who know weakness, who are dissatisfied with our lives, don't be afraid. For the power of God has now broken through into this world through me. It doesn't mean all your problems are going to get solved the way you want them to. It doesn't mean everything's going to go your way from here on out. It doesn't mean your life will be easy, but it does mean it is possible for you to live life without fear. And Jesus modeled this. Remember the story of Jesus in the boat during the big storm? They're all scared for their lives. Where's Jesus? Sleeping. He's not afraid. And what's amazing, his followers, his disciples, his apprentices, who are ordinary people like you and I, who knew weakness and frailty, they actually really began to live the same kind of life as well. In the book of Acts, we see Peter, who is standing in front of the governmental officials of his day, being told, If you continue to talk about this guy Jesus, we'll beat you, we'll throw you in prison, we'll kill you. And he said, Judge for yourselves what you think is the right thing to do, to obey you or God. We can't stop talking about what you've seen and heard. And it says they were amazed because they knew these guys were ordinary Galileans, but they were fearless. Look at the Apostle Paul who said, nothing can separate us from God's love. And he lists all these horrible things. But he said, but none of them can separate you from God's love. In fact, in another place, Paul said, you know, if I die, that's a good thing. I get to go be with God for eternity. That's a win. But if I live, I get to keep on spreading the, the gospel and expanding the kingdom. That's a win. Nothing can happen to me in life that's not a win. Imagine receiving adequate power for life the power to be transformed, the power over time to gradually become the person that you long to be. Eighteen times in Mark, it says that people were astounded by Jesus. Why? Because he lived in the flow of the power of God. And he said, if you become my disciple, my apprentice, you can learn that too. The third question, why to follow Jesus? Third answer is Jesus touches and he heals. Again, going on with Mark chapter 1. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. You know, no self respecting rabbi would allow himself to be touched by a leper and this wasn't just about kind of the unclean like germophobia kind of thing there were spiritual connotations to this in the old testament leprosy was listed not just as a physical affliction but as a spiritual affliction you were defiled you were spiritually unclean and as a result you were not allowed to go to the temple and make sacrifices for your sins if you couldn't go make sacrifices for your sins there was no blood shed for the atonement of your sins if there was no blood shed for the atonement of your sins then you still live trapped in your sins with the guilt and shame associated with that so to have leprosy was not only a, a physical death sentence, it was not only a relational death sentence because you had to live outside the city in a, like a little slum area, but it was a spiritual death sentence. You were trapped, isolated from God. I want you to imagine living that kind of life. Never knowing touch, never knowing the embrace of your kids, never knowing a handshake or a hug of a friend, never having a pat on the back at work. Never walking arm in arm with your spouse, never knowing physical intimacy, never having your little boy or a little girl snuggle up on your lap by the fire. Nothing. Just loneliness and despair. Jesus does two things. He touches and he heals. And that's significant because he could have just healed with a word. He did that in other places. But I think he's trying to make a statement. In fact, what comes first? The healing or the touch? The touch. I think the key phrase is in verse 41, filled with compassion. See, I think Jesus recognized that more than he even needed physical healing, he needed emotional and spiritual healing. He needed to be touched right where he was, broken and all. And that was such a contrast to the religious leaders of the the day who are always trying to protect their righteousness and keep away from anything that could possibly defile them. And now people see God's righteousness available, not just to the elite, not just to the religious, but to the sick and to the diseased and to the broken and the outsiders. God is now supremely approachable. Jesus touches, then he heals. He doesn't just come near, but he begins to change those things in us that are broken and sick and lead us to wholeness. Some of you may be here this morning and you maybe feel a little bit like an outsider. Maybe you've got stuff in your past that kind of secrets nobody knows about. Maybe there's issues that bring you shame. Maybe you've made some bad choices. Maybe you feel like I'm not good enough. You kind of want to keep God at arm's length because you're afraid if you come close, he's going to hammer you. Maybe you've had a bad experience in church. Maybe you're not even sure you'll buy all this God stuff. But deep down in your heart of hearts, you would know that something is broken in you. There's a sickness in all of us. You know the ache between who you are and who you want to be. And Jesus would say, all you have to do is do what the leper did. Just come to me and I'll touch and I'll heal. I'll free you from your past, I'll bring forgiveness, I'll cleanse you, I'll heal the parts of your heart that are broken. And it's more than just about being healed. This is, the, this is so huge. You're healed because you have a greater purpose for your life. Why did Jesus ask all these people to follow him? I mean, we, we talked about him walking around, tapping people on the shoulder, saying, follow me. Why did he ask people to be his apprentice, his disciples? It's right there in the text. In Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 17, we read it earlier. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The point of discipleship, the point of apprenticeship, the point of followership is not ultimately about you. It's for the world. When you are a follower, when you experience positive change, transformation in your life, when that happens in you, that's a good thing. But our transformation ought to have a positive impact on the world if it's true transformation. That's why hope exists. I want to show you just on the screen what our mission is as a church. It's kind of our mission statement. Hope exists to make fully transformed or morphed, we talked about that word last week, followers of Jesus, apprentices, disciples of Jesus. That's our mission. Who will be sent out to transform this state by transforming its heart in Springfield. That's why we exist. Jesus says his apprentices are commissioned as agents to be part of of his plan of redeeming the world. One thing I find interesting is Part of the rabbinical culture of that day, there were lots of rabbis besides Jesus. There was lots of rabbis that had disciples besides Jesus. But the typical way the culture would work is rabbis would kind of put out their shingle and say, I'm a rabbi, and then disciples would come to them, and the rabbi would pick the very best disciples to be theirs. We only know of one other occurrence in the entire ancient world besides Jesus where the rabbis actually went out and sought disciples and called them to follow him. And you notice Jesus doesn't recruit the spiritual giants or the intellectuals or the highly successful but ordinary people like fishermen and even messy ones like Matthew, the tax collector. And he says, I'm going to use you to redeem the universe. I'm going to put you in the most important business of all, the business of saving people. That's what he calls us to be involved in as well. Again, I want you to imagine with me someone who knows what they're talking about. They always speak the truth and they know. And can teach ordinary people how to live in the flow of God's power. And a person who comes near us and touches us and heals us. And says now you are the light of the world. You are on a mission from God. You are a part of God's plan to redeem the universe. The last answer to the question why follow Jesus is Jesus offers the deal of a lifetime. You don't have to turn there but in Matthew chapter 13 there's an interesting little short parable that Jesus teaches he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found it he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field again the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls when he found one of great value he went away and sold everything he had and bought it I just want to plant a seed this morning that I'm going to actually come back to in a couple of weeks but here's the deal most of us hear that little parable and we kind of read it into it as a had to he had to sell everything We think this is a story about commitment, this is a story about sacrifice, and we start to already feel guilty because we think I probably don't do enough or give enough and blah, blah, blah. And if that's what you hear in this, then you're missing it. These stories do involve a decision, and decision is a very important piece of the the apprenticing, the discipleship journey. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. But you need to have crystal clarity on this. Look back at verse 44. It says, When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold. In his joy. Selling everything was not a difficult decision. This was not a big risk for him. This was not him being spiritual. This was not him being noble. In his own eyes, he was just being smart. He would see himself as stupid not to do this. He just can't believe how lucky he's gotten. I mean, to put this in modern terms, imagine you, by luck, find out that the winning Powerball ticket for the lotto, $100 million payout, is in the trunk of a car that's at a dealership down the street. And it's a sure thing. This isn't a gimmick. This isn't like a scam. It is there. It's in the car. And if you buy the car, you can have whatever's in it. Cost of the car is $35,000. But you have to pay cash for the car. Wouldn't it be stupid of you not to just sell what you had to sell? cash out whatever you had to cash out retirement stocks whatever get a loan if you need to whatever you have to do to buy the car you're not sacrificing you're not making doing anything noble you're not doing anything spiritual you're just being smart that's the implication of what Jesus says there's a TV show that came out years ago about a guy who had that kind of luck just lucked into something like that there's a story about a man named Jed a poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed And then one day he was just out shooting at some food and up through the ground came a... Yeah, he didn't respond to anything else in the whole message and then you know that. (laughs) Yes, oil that is, black gold Texas tea. So what did he do? He moved to California. Where in California? Beverly Hills, right. He just can't believe his luck. See, that's what Jesus is saying. If you understand what he has to offer, then you'll understand that the folks who said yes to this offer... They understood this was the deal of a lifetime. They weren't spiritual giants or martyrs or even crazy people. They just just saw themselves as smart. They thought, what else can I do? This is the only sane option. So in two weeks, we're going to talk about the importance of the decision that we have to make. Next week, we're actually going to get really practical and talk about how do I live out the principles of being an apprentice in my daily life. But here's all I want you to do. I, I've been very careful last week and this week to not give you a lot of application because I want you to just to wrestle with some ideas. And I'm going to ask you to ponder this question. Who is your teacher? Who is your master? Who do you follow? Don't just give the churchy answer, but think about it. Who is your life modeled after? Really. And then answer, ask this question, why follow Jesus? Have you really wrestled with the fact that he knows what he's talking about? that he taught ordinary people like you and I how to live in the flow of God's power. Jesus comes near us and touches us and heals us, and he offers the deal of a lifetime. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am, uh, I am grateful for this good news. And I just ask as we leave this week that you would begin to take some of this stuff and root it down deep in us, that we would not, um, that we would break free from the patterns of kind of seeing Christianity, seeing church as this something we do that we just show up and we sing a couple songs and you know we believe the right things about you or whatever and, and maybe listen to a talk, maybe put a little money in the plate, we go home. Maybe during the week we say a couple prayers, try to be a good person, but that's like what it means to be a Christian. That's so far from it. That's not good news at all. That's blah news. It may be the reason so many of us have had seasons where we checked out of church, out of a relationship with God. Maybe the reason so many people in this world have walked away is because we haven't been communicating the good news as it's been meant to be communicated. That if communicated in the way that you communicated it and lived it, that people would just see it as like the only sane option. The only reasonable thing to do. God, if this is striking a chord with some of us, we're we're feeling like, man, I've never heard it that way. uh, I've never had it communicated to me in that way. I honestly haven't seen it in that way. Begin to stir something in us that says maybe there is more to this faith thing, this God thing, this thing of following you than I've learned. Allow us to make a commitment that I'll do what I have to do to come and investigate what it means to really be your apprentice, to be your disciple, to be your follower. We thank you for your grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.